Welcome to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast aims to bring the sermon from our Sunday morning services to you each and every week. Whether you're a longtime follower of Christ or just beginning to explore the Christian faith, we invite you to join us as we dive deep into the Word of God. So listen in as we jump into what the Lord has for us today. For the past 20 years, we've had a front row seat to God doing more than we could ever imagine. Lives impacted for all eternity. Public professions of faith through baptism. Kids and adults discipled in the ways of Jesus. Campuses expanded to reach the multitude, serving the least, the last, and the lost. And now our sights are set on something bigger and bolder, something immeasurably more. Let us join God in what he is doing next. Good morning. Hey, I'm really glad to be here with you today. My name is Nick Allen, and I get to serve as the campus pastor of this location of Rolling Hills. Um, and it's a privilege to have you here joining us as we're in this series, week two, and this idea of next. Um, but if there's something that's happening next, that means that there's something that happened, you know, not last, not next. And, and we've been celebrating for 20, uh, 20 years the life of Rolling Hills, and really this year, our 20th year, has been a big birthday celebration and all that God has done. The series that we completed before this was all about walking through Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, that says God, do, not a him who can do immeasurably more. Like, wh- wh- what are we talking about? Immeasurably more than anything that we ask or imagine. I have a wild imagination, and yet God is able to do far more than that. And because he's continued to do far more than that, we're asking him what he's going to do next. If you haven't picked up one of these bracelets that Michael mentioned just a little bit ago, um, do that because it says on their next, which is convenient because that's the title of this series, um, and then those verses, Ephesians 3, 20, and 21. But I was today years old when I realized that on the inside there's an inscription. And y'all, some of y'all are already wearing your bracelet, and you didn't know this either. Um, the teenagers are the ones that told me, because if you want to know something that's cool and hidden and has this kind of fun meaning, you need to ask a millennial or somebody that's next. But they told me, and it says on the inside in, in kind of a super hidden script, the best is yet to come. And we really do believe that. That the best is yet to come, that there's something that's happening that God alone is doing and is capable of, and we want to be a part of that. We want to be a people who tune into that and figure out what it is so that we can jump on board, so that we can celebrate, and not only that, so that we can point other people to understanding it too. In between that series on Ephesians chapter 3 verses 20 and 21, we did a one-off day on the book of Ezra, and then last week we dove headstrong into Nehemiah chapter 1. Today we're picking up in Nehemiah chapter 2. If you want to turn your analog Bibles there, you can for a moment. If you want to get out your phone and pull it up digitally, we're also going to pop the words up on the screen, but we're diving into this character, Nehemiah. And prior to the third century, these books were regarded as just one narrative, the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. In fact, it wasn't until the 15th century AD that they were split in two in the Hebrew Bible. So the Jews continued to regard them as one narrative story of the exiles returning from captivity in Babylon and then Persia to the place that God had always called them to be and promised them that they would be his holy perfect land. And so we get the narrative of what that looks like under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. And those stories are chronicled through these books. 
And we know that Zerubbabel and other contemporary leaders of his, like Haggai the prophet, were called to go back and to rebuild the temple. They had lived most of their lives in exile. When Cyrus the Persian came to power, he allowed them to return and to rebuild their lives in the city that God had promised them. So they complete that temple, and then Ezra comes back in, reads the word of the law, and institutes their worship practices again and their commitment to God and his word. And then Nehemiah comes on the scene. And last week we learned that Nehemiah was still in Persia. Because not every Hebrew exile, not every Jewish brother and sister was able to go back in those waves and in those remnants of return. Some people were still back in Persia living their lives, and Nehemiah was one of them, and he's who we encountered last week. So in Ezra chapter 6, verse 14, we read these words. It says, So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Edo. They finished building the temple according to the command of God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. And we have a timeline of what this looks like for us. Like we see this picture of what's going on when Nebuchadnezzar came and he destroyed the temple and he deports all these Israelites back to the Babylonian empire and they lived in that exilic period for 70 years. Babylon falls to King Cyrus of Persia in 539 and then a year later he lets the exiles begin to move back into their city and rebuild that temple and then, whoa, almost 100 years later, Ezra and all these other folks are working to bring the word back. And then another decade later, we've got Nehemiah. I wrote the names on, and you know, I had, nobody would do this for me, so I just hand wrote it on there. We've got the dates of Cyrus, approximate dates, because, you know, they didn't write everything down way back thousands of years ago. And then Darius 1, 522 to 486 BC, approximate. And then shortly thereafter, Artaxerxes and other kings that are named in between. Ezra's writing down, it's like, yeah, under the reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, under the reigns of Darius the Great, and under the reigns of Artaxerxes, this is what happened when God's people were allowed to return home. And so in chapter 1, in the month of Kislev, which is around our like November, December, Nehemiah gets a report from a friend named Hanani. He comes back and he was like, oh yeah, this is what's happening. Like the temple, it's rebuilt, and, and, but the walls are in ruins around the city. And so in the month of Nisan, we land on chapter two. It's like eh, March, April, three and a half, four months later. And this is what happens in the life of Nehemiah. And what this reminds us of, and what we have to understand that this is a part of, is that what we can gather for ourselves today is that God does not call us to minimal mundane things. Like the idea that the people would get to move back to the city that God had promised, the idea that they in their day and their generation would be called to rebuild the temple, the place where God's presence dwelt, the place that set them apart from all the other nations of the world, the place that was synonymous with their law and their worship. If they were allowed to go back and rebuild that, God does not call them to minimal mundane things. He called them to live a meaningful life and he does the same thing for us. Like he's not calling us to live some minimal mundane life. He's calling us to something that's more meaningful than we ever imagined before. In chapter 2, it says this, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, none of this is happening really, really fast. Like we're decades and decades and decades into the return. It took a long time to rebuild the temple. It's taking a long time to get all the people back that are coming in waves to be able to worship. It's going to take a long time to rebuild this wall. Here we are 20 years into the reign of King Artaxerxes when wine was brought for him. I took the wine and gave it to the king. See, Nehemiah had a role. Not everybody got to move back. He's there in Persia living out his role. And it says, I had not been sad in his presence before. Humble brag. Um, so, okay, you've never been sad before. I get it. Okay, whatever. So the king asked me, 
Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness. We'll come back to that word today of heart. And the indication that's here for us is that this is a guy, Nehemiah, Jewish guy, who had a position of power in a Persian government and a strong relationship with the king. Whose face, can you tell, looks different than the people that you know really well, the people that you're around all the time. There was a closeness and there was a recognition and a familiarity between the king and Nehemiah. He knew exactly what was going on. And he knew that it wasn't something that was making him ill, which is a really good thing. Because if a guy comes to me and he looks really, really sick, I don't want him handing me wine. Like, I don't want to eat anything that that guy's touched. But he knows that it's not that. It's something much deeper in the moment. And Nehemiah was very much afraid, but he said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Like the city that's still important to me, city that I haven't lived in, the city that I haven't been to, the city that I haven't engaged in a really long time is still really important to me. And there's something meaningful that's going on there, and I'm not yet able to be a part of it. And what we get to understand in this kind of moment, this whole idea of like, hey, I'm not supposed to do something that's minimal and mundane with my life. I'm supposed to do something that's really, really meaningful. Meaningful does not mean famous. Meaningful does not mean wealthy. Meaningful does not mean that every time you take a deep breath, somebody's going to post about it on social media and it's going to go viral in a minute. Like, we're all the time looking like, oh, how can I enhance my followers and how can I become an influencer? And all the kids in the world want to have a YouTube channel. You can stop paying for that because what God is calling us to is not that thing that's going to make us more worldly meaningful. Because if Nehemiah wanted to stay and do what was meaningful according to the empire of the earth, he would have just stayed in the king's court. That was the most meaningful thing that he, look at the position of power that he had risen to, and look at the opportunity that he had to bend the king's ear anytime, like look at the role that he had in the community. He had reached its peak, and that was probably as high as he was ever gonna go. He had something meaningful according to the empire's eyes, and if he wanted to do something meaningful according to the world standards, he should have just stayed right there. I can't say how many times I've talked to a high school student, college student, or young adult, about what it means to follow God's call for their life and the risk that they feel compelled to take for him and the answer to to, to a ministry call that they feel like employing only to be talked out of it by their well-meaning Christian parents and communities. Because, oh, well, that's that's awesome, but we see the difficulty you're going to face, so we would rather you— look, doesn't grad school look so much better than that? Doesn't doesn't a really good vocation— with a 401k and health insurance look better than God's call for your life? You can support somebody. Look, then you'll have money and can support other people to do it. can't tell you how many conversations I've had about people that are exploring God's grand call for their life only to be talked out of it, to go do in something empire-minded instead. Martin Luther King Jr. said that if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets, even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. Another commentator remarking about this quote said, you know what? If God calls you to collect trash, it's probably a sin to be the president. Like, what's the thing that God's going to call us to do and the risk that he's going to call us to take? And in this moment, Nehemiah could have downplayed it. Hey, you don't look so good. Oh, no, I'm fine. And I know that that's the course that a lot of people take. Oh, oh, no, I'm fine. 
when in reality something may not be fine. So Nehemiah took a big, bold step. He didn't play it safe. He, he was scared, but he still spoke up all about the sadness of his heart and what was breaking it. What breaks your heart? What causes all the people around you that know you the best to look at you and say, hey, what's going on? I see something on your face. Michael mentioned just a few minutes ago that many of us were able to attend the JMI Gala on Thursday night, and we continue to hear fantastic stories long before Rolling Hills owned property here in the States and could have a campus for Franklin, have a campus for Nolan's, want to have a campus here and now. Long before any of that took place, while we were still in rented setup, teardown, God called us to plant a missions agency in the small Eastern European country of Moldova and to own property there so that kids would have a place to go and to thrive when they were kicked out of an orphanage at just six years old, helping them avoid a life of violent crime and a life of human trafficking because this small, tiny Eastern European country of Moldova, landlocked by all the other former Soviet Union countries, was the place in the world where the most young kids were trafficked. And if you joined us in January, we celebrated our 20th year and we got to worship all together as all the campuses came to the Ryman. You got to see Tudor and hear a lot of his story if you were at Rolling Hills 17, 18, 19, 20 years ago, this was not um, a, a, a good-looking young adult Eastern European man. Um, it was a young kid who set a volunteer's pants on fire. Really, that story happened, I've been told. It was a kid who had no chance. And because of the work of Justice and Mercy International and the meaningful ways that God wrote a story through Rolling Hills, he was given a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth chance. And now he's thriving. He's married to a girl that came through the same program as him, and they have a beautiful little daughter. And he shared with us on Thursday night that as a kid who was growing up with nothing, no parent, no adult to love you and to tell you that you were worth something and to give you a chance in life, he knows that his daughter will never, ever have that. And so we got to hear that story, and in the middle of the moment, our daughters who had been serving at the JMI Gala that night, they came up to us in tears, wanting to know how they could do more because their hearts were broken. We could see it on their faces because they've never had that story, because they've had parents who love them and parents who nurture them and an entire church community who tells them that they're worth something. And I know that there are people in this room whose stories is a lot more like Tudor's than the story is like my girls and what we want to continue to be is a place over and over and over again that says you can have a chance to hear that God is good, that he loves you and has a plan for your life. This morning we're privileged to be able to hear even more about what God is doing. We said it was Mission Sunday through the work of Justice and Mercy International through our national directors. So check out this video. Well, I have the privilege to be sitting here with our national directors from Moldova and the Amazon and Sarah and Alina are part of our church family. You know, we started Justice Mercy International 15 years ago, and who could have ever dreamed or imagine what God was going to do? And we are so excited about what he's done and what he's going to do next. Hey, tell us what's happening in the Amazon, Sarah, and then in Moldova, Alina. First, this is awesome to be here. It's also a blessing to be with Rolling Hills Church family. We feel the love, the continual love and partnership with you guys. And this year was a crazy big year in the Amazon as we had two full conferences after the pandemic and all that we went through. The pastors, we felt like they were back in joy and ministry and encouraged, but also so many mission teams from both um, America and from Brazil. Our children are sponsored. We opened libraries, we opened schools. We continue to see 
the people in the jungle praying for help and the Lord continuing to respond to those needs in places that probably you and I will never get to, but these jungle pastors are all over the jungle bringing the kingdom as we continue to push them forward. I'm very grateful that he continues to hear, the Lord continues to respond, and we are part of that. Elena, you, you've had a lot this year in Moldova, too. Yeah, tell us kind of what's going on there now. All the programs are running. Jamai uh, continues to help, support, and provide hope for the needy children and teenagers in Moldova. Uh, we started the new school year with over 20 new transitional living kids, uh, teenagers, which is extremely uh, wonderful and fun. Uh, we uh, continue to sponsor kids in the villages, over 70 villages in Moldova, where children receive help monthly and um, they receive the uh, news of uh, salvation and the good news of Jesus. Uh, we started the new program, Youth Development. It has been a great success. Everybody loves it. We have the number of staff growing. We have new transitional living kids who became our colleagues, who became the staff. Uh, we continue to feel the prayers, the love, and the support of Rolling Hills, of GMI, and we're so thankful that you go with us through uh, COVID, pandemic, through war, inflation, everything. Mm. Thank you so much, and we do feel the support and the love daily. We're in a campaign. We're talking about the next 20 years at church and the next mission and our encouraging everybody to take a next step. You know, what, what are some of the plans that you have coming up next? The Amazon, Jeff, mm. you've been. I oh, mean, yeah. it's a Fantastic. three million people living within the jungle, and I feel like we never have enough. Mm -hmm. There's always too much for us to do. And we keep talking about the pastor's conference and how that is central and essential. It's because training has allowed the locals to provide a better life, provide God's love, mm -hmm. provide a relationship with Jesus. And so for the next year, uh, we're going from two pastor's conference to a third pastor's conference. Mm -hmm. We had over 250 leaders being trained in this year, and <laughs> it was already over, like it was packed, and we couldn't have it anywhere. So in May, we're adding a new conference. We do have libraries on the way, more villages that are yet to receive our sponsorship program through the kids. It's a truly has been a lot. Just now, a nine-year-old learned how to read in one of our programs because she had no access to school. And those are some of the things that we get to do through our educational programs, as well as our mission teams, but also our jungle pastors are also are now going on missions with a river church. Their local church is going, which has been one of the most biblical things I have seen <laughs> to see a jungle church fulfilling the Great Commission, mm -hmm. as well as our um, transportation pastoral care pastors who are paddling for two days to get somewhere. We have been able to provide engines for them to get to further places quicker. More children, yeah. more children <laughs> sponsored in the villages, in shelters, mm -hmm. more young people coming to the houses who will mm -hmm. get a chance to become leaders, to become successful, to become independent. Mm -hmm. You know, so we are praying for the uh, continuation of this new program, youth development. We want more houses. We want mm -hmm. uh, community centers in the villages. We're praying for more projects, more ideas, and we pray that God blesses this beginning. Tell us, how can we be praying for both of you? That we would always be aligned with the Lord, mm -hmm. what he wills for the Amazon, but also for our staff, for mm -hmm. strength, for encouragement, for wisdom and vision, for provision of more people. The Bible tells us to pray for people and it's no joke. We mm -hmm. need more people. We need teams. We need people to come and help us on the ground. 
And if the Lord is speaking to some of you um, about how to serve, how to volunteer, everything that you see that is happening with Jeremiah is because some people said yes. Be encouraged to respond in however way the Lord is is calling you to. The jungle needs the Lord. They need Jesus because I'm not there all the time to fuel them with mm. the ibuprofen, but the Lord can. Mm. I'm not always there to hug them and to comfort them, but the Lord is. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we do pray that this next year will be a year of salvation and mm-hmm. redemption. The harvest is ready. Uh-huh. Uh, we need more people yeah. for the staff from Moldova, for the courage, mm. for more love, more patience, uh, strength from the Lord, uh, for provision, for help, for unity. Mm-hmm. We want to all be united in this wonderful desire to pursue his kingdom. Well, we want you guys to know that we are praying for you. And uh, we just want to encourage every one of us to take a next step and maybe going on a mission trip at some point to the amazon or to moldova or sponsoring a child you know or sponsoring a pastor i mean we have jmi reps at all of our campuses it's mission sunday and so for us that opportunity that we have as we grow spiritually and so can i pray for you guys right now let's say a prayer right now father thank you for sarah for alina god thank you for the hundreds or thousands of pastors and vulnerable children that are in the Amazon, God, that you have called us to minister to. Thank you for the thousands of precious orphan and vulnerable children in Moldova, the transitional homes. God, I pray for Sarah and Lena. Give them wisdom, God. Just give them a real sense of your presence with them. Protect them, God. And Lord, I pray that we all stay in the center of your will. Thank you for what you're doing at Rolling Hills and JMI. And God, we give you our lives and we give you what's next. In the beautiful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We don't shy away from telling these stories and they have the intention of breaking our hearts, of aligning us with, like Sarah said, what God's purpose is for us, the meaningful thing that he wants us to engage, the the meaningful, immeasurably more thing that he wants us to accomplish. God, every time, every opportunity, every story, every Sunday morning sermon, every Bible study that you engage and that you attend, every time you open up your Bible in the morning to follow through with whatever reading plan you're on, every song that you hear on the radio station or the podcast that you listen to, all of those things are intent on the great God of this universe connecting your story to his story, connecting the life that he's given you to live to the life that he wants you to have in him, the thing that he wants you to do. This is what's so cool about this. In Jeremiah chapter 29, the prophet writes a letter to the exiles, writes a letter to the people that are disenfranchised and they're away from their holy city. And this is the text, it's printed for us. And it says, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem. There he is to the surviving elders, anybody that had made it through this entire period among the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and all the other people that Nebuchadnezzar had carried off into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So so that when Ezra writes his letter in very chapter 1 of Ezra chapter 1, he says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. Guys, the thing that the prophet said, that's happening right there in their day and generation. The thing that they've been waiting for, this is what's going on. And they're recognizing, hey, the thing that God said he was going to do, he's doing right now among us. Chapter 29 of Jeremiah, verse 10 says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Can you imagine being a people who were reading that letter and thinking, oh my mercy, this is us. That's the way that we're supposed to approach scripture. 
That's the way that you and I are supposed to reach, read the New Testament. That's the way that we're supposed to engage Paul's letters and Jesus' commands for us to go to the nations. We're supposed to read that and go, y'all, for real, those words are about us and our day and our generation and the thing that we're supposed to be doing, the meaningful call that we're supposed to answer for God. And it will always take far more boldness and far more effort and far more risk-taking threshold than we're ever able to muster. Boldness, here's my definition. It's when things can go really wrong, but you move anyway. It's when things can go really wrong, but you move anyway. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 4, it picks up where it says, The king said to me, what is it that you want? And I wonder if that king had ever asked Nehemiah that before. I mean, kings didn't have to do that. They didn't have to be generous. They didn't have to listen to your problems. They didn't have to look at your face and recognize that something was really wrong and ask you how they could help. But in this moment, he looks at Nehemiah. I wonder if he'd ever asked him, hey, what do you want? In that moment, Scripture says that Nehemiah was afraid, and so what did he do? I prayed to the Lord, the God of heaven, and I answered the king. He was bold, and he asked. He says, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, oh, how long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I'm gathering from this passage of scripture that Nehemiah's understanding what God's calling is on his life and the time that it's going to take, and that's what we get to do too. Because every single one of us has a call on our life and a time that we live and get to fulfill it. On Wednesday nights, Kelly Mentor's been here leading a women's ministry Bible study of which I have been participating, judge on judger. Okay, it's fantastic, and it's on the book of Esther. And we know that that book falls in line with the timeline that we're in. We've got Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and then Job, and then we've got Psalms and all the prophets, and it's fantastic. But we're looking at those three books. And Nehemiah, still in Persia, cupbearer to the king. Esther, still in Persia, wife to the king. If you want to talk about being, like, completely empire-minded, they get to walk into a king's palace headquarters every single day. Be like, oh, here's your wine. Oh, I get to be your pretty wife. And all of those other exiles, they're carrying bricks. If you had asked me at this time, the same way, like, Esther, do you want to carry bricks, or do you want to be a queen? Y'all know what you would have picked. Nehemiah, do you want to carry a cup of wine? Probably get to have a little sip yourself. Or do you want to carry bricks? This is a hard life that they're being called to. And in that moment, the story that we know about Esther is that there she is living with the king under disguise. Nobody knows. Like, it's a hidden Mickey. Nobody knows that she's Jewish in this moment. And this man named Haman unlocks this whole plot to kill and annihilate all the Jews that are still there. There are some that are back building the city. And there they are getting ready to be killed. And her cousin comes to her and is like, hey, if for such a time as this, this might be why you're still here. Why you're not back there carrying bricks and helping all the others build the temple. Why you're not back there carrying bricks and help us get a brand new wall. Why you're not there worshiping with all your people again. You're still here, and it's for such a time as this to save your people. Every one of us has a call and a time that we're supposed to live it. Sarah said this in the video. Everything that we're experiencing right now, like this room that we're in, the ministry that our kids are engaged in down the hall, the campuses that we have, the mission trips that we get to go on, the people that we get to sponsor, all of that is because somebody else said yes. We all have a call and a time in which we get to fulfill it and a place. The place that you're in, the place that God has set you, he put you there. And whatever setting you're in, Nehemiah chapter 1 says that Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. And we don't think for one second that that was happenstance. He was in that place for a reason. God put him there to accomplish his purpose. It says in chapter 2, verse 7, So I also asked, 
If it please the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I also have a letter. I mean, you talk about a guy that was scared to ask the king for something. He just gave him a big old Santa Claus list. Can I have this? Can I have this? Can I have this? Can I have this? Can I have uh, another letter to Asaph, the keeper of the royal park, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the re- And can you build me a house, the residence I will occupy? And it says in verse 8, because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. Not only has God issued a call in our lives and giving us a time and a day that we're supposed to accomplish it and, and put us in a specific setting to help us do that, he's given us the influence and the access that we have in order to do it. Every one of us. You don't have to have a bunch of followers. You don't have to be on YouTube. You don't have to be famous. Maybe you've never gone viral. That's okay. You have influence. You have a platform. You have access to something and someone and an opportunity with which you can leverage for the good thing that God has called you to do. And it won't be without opposition. And we'll get there throughout the remainder of this book because there were these people. We encounter them now in verse 10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, when they hear about Nehemiah getting all the things that he needed in order to come back and build the wall, they were very much disturbed. We can underline that word because it matters and we're going to come back to it. That someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. He didn't want something good to happen for the Jews. Why? Because he's a Horonite. And we know that that means he came from Horonaim, which is a city in Moab. And the Moabites always hated and were always against the Israelites. And that word disturbed, it's the Hebrew word ra'ah. It means bad. It means displeasing. It means Sometimes it's translated as evil. It means to be injurious, which means that it causes injury. It means to break. It means to shatter. It means to be broken in pieces. And it's the same exact word that the king used when he described Nehemiah's face in verse 3. Nehemiah, you look raw. You look disturbed. Well, that's not what you want to hear. You look broken. You look sad. That's the reaction that these people had to the work of God that was being accomplished in their community. So in verse 11, Nehemiah went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I sat out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one that I was riding on by night. Well, this is a scary situation. Sometimes God calls you to take a risk and to sacrifice. This is a scary situation. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate. Yes, that was a literal place. It means exactly what you think it means. Examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. If you look at the wall that was around the city, you'll you'll figure out that, that, that the valley gate and the dung gate were about 500 yards apart you can figure out how many football fields that is this afternoon when you're watching TV. Okay, so 500 yards apart, and they both led to the same exact valley, the Valley of Hinnom. You want to know what the Valley of Hinnom was? It wasn't just the place where the dung, it wasn't just the place where the trash, it wasn't just the place where the waste went out of the city. In the time of Jeremiah, where the people of God worshipped a false idol named Molech and were willing to sacrifice on fire their own children in worship of that foreign god, that's where the bodies were carried. So this is the part of the city that he's walking around. And this is the part of the sin of his people that he's recognizing. Sometimes when we want to figure out what's next, sometimes when we want to answer God's call, sometimes when we want to follow in obedience to what he's calling us to do, we have to assess the damage that's been done. 
I had to go to Moldova and figure out mercy. These kids are being trafficked. We had to go to the Amazon and realize, mercy, this is so big. How's the gospel going to get? Like, sometimes we've got to just go and assess what the issues are and what the challenges are. And as Nehemiah made his way around the city, that's what he's figuring out. Not only what the challenges are, but what his own sin and what his people's own disobedience was that led to it. So then he moved on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, and this is the most perfect juxtaposition. Because he went from a place that was all about cleansing it's all about their sin, all about getting that stuff out. And then he moved to a place that was a fountain and a pool, all about being filled back up. It says there was not enough room for my mount to get through. It's because a mount is a horse. It's a lot it was big. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing because I, as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or anyone who would be doing the work. Somehow or another, our boldness is required whenever we realize that God has called us to something incredibly meaningful and that he has given us our time and our day and our generation and our setting, the one that we live and the access and the influence that we have to accomplish the call that he planted in our hearts. We're asking as a church, like understanding that the best is yet to come. What is next for us as a church? What's next for you as an individual follower of Jesus Christ? Verse 17, he says, you see the trouble that we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. Lord, break our heart for what breaks yours. Help us to see the damage that's been done and the challenges that are present, and to be so bold that we walk into it knowing that you were able to do immeasurably more than what we ask or imagine. And what we understand that is a part of our call and a part of the issue that he's given us is that we always, in everything, point to him in word and in deed and work says in verse 18, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And so they replied, let's start rebuilding. Let's do it. And then they began this good work. But when Sanballat, here he is again, we'll find him again later, the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem, now we got Geshem the Arab that's joined in too. When they heard about it, they mocked us and they ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? And then Nehemiah answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. How funny that the biggest insult that Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite and Gershom the Arab could throw at Nehemiah in this moment was, you're defying the earthly king, you better be careful. Well, they weren't because they had permission, but that's another story. You're defying the earthly king. You better be careful. And Nehemiah's like, we serve a different king. What, what, what king do you serve? Following him will take boldness. So what do you want? What do you want your life to mean? What do you want it to count for? What is the call that we are answering that question finds its way into New Testament passages, too. There's two guys, can't see, led on the side of the road. They're begging people all the time. Jesus is walking through the city in Matthew chapter 20, and he's like, like well, 
what is it that you want? And they said, we want to be healed. Everybody else that walked by, they wanted help. And and to Jesus, they said, we want to be healed. You go fast forward in Acts chapter 3, and the disciples are walking in a similar fashion outside of the temple courts. And there's a guy that had been left there every day, and he's been begging for the same manner of help. And he looks at the disciples, and instead of asking for healing, he asks them for money. And they respond by saying, silver and gold we do not have, but what we do have we give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Get up and walk. Sometimes people ask for too little. They just want the minimal mundane thing. When Jesus can provide the bigger, better thing. And so maybe the king of this great universe, not the king of the earthly empire, is looking at us today and saying, okay, what do you want? Worldly success, moderate amounts of help, eh, some good deeds that I can do on your behalf. Or I want to risk it all and give everything I have to follow you. Will you pray with me this morning? Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for the chance to be together in this place. Thank you for the incredibly unique, wild calling that you have issued to us to be your followers and to take your will and your word and your work to the uttermost parts of the world. Help us to be a people who who go that big and go that bold and want nothing more than to follow you. Would you help us be like Nehemiah a little bit today? Who stop working for the king of the world and, and, and start working for the kingdom of God. May we be about your will. It's in the name of Thank Jesus. Thank you for listening that we pray to today. the Rolling Hills Sermon Amen. Podcast. Be sure to share this episode with any friends and family in your life who may benefit from it. And make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss out on a single sermon. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our Church Center app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thank you for tuning in.